Today we're going to discuss the barbarians and how they swept into the Roman Empire. The greatest danger to Rome is going to come from an unexpected enemy, the Germanic tribes. The Germans were a farming people who raised cattle. A man a man's status was based on how many cows he owned and how many wives he had. And if you look at the Germanic tribes, there's not much of a difference. Um, they lived in small villages and they usually buried a horse's skull under the floor of a new house to bring good luck. They were patriarchal and their villages were organized into clans of 10 to 12 families. And then the clans were part of a larger group, a tribe. The kings ran a tribe. They were elected. However, the kings were similar to Mycenaean kings. They remained kings as long as they were successful. They were militaristic. Fighting was a way to gain wealth and status. And they had been in contact with the Roman Empire for a long time. As a matter of fact, there was a love-hate relationship between the Germans and the Romans. The Romans looked down on the Germans. Compared to the wealth of a, a Roman nobility, a chief with ten cows and five wives was laughable. They, they, most chiefs could not read or write. When one uh, Roman asked a Visigothic chieftain how he could be a chief if he couldn't even write his own name, he, the chief replied, what do we have Greek slaves for? Uh, the, the, uh, German, the Romans called them barbarians after the fact that they were bearded, barbarous. Germans were also overwhelmingly pagan, as Romans had become more and more Christian. The Germanic tribes, who lived in the north of the Rhine at a place called Gastein, worshipped a great waterfall, which tumbled down the mountainside. Every midsummer's day, the prettiest girl of the village was thrown into the maelstrom at the foot of the waterfall. But throughout the following year, the family of this sacrificed girl was so honored and given anything they wanted that there was great competition to, to be chosen as the next year's prettiest girl. They also believed in many gods and goddesses and believed that the world consisted of hell, the Middle Earth, and heaven. The Germans loved mountaintops, and at the time of the summer solstice, they would light great bonfires dedicated to Baldur, the sun god. They were a physically fit people, and they were excellent fighters. A man's horse was his personal friend. Happiness was described not as a warm puppy, but as a good horse. A warrior who died in battle often had his horse buried with him. They were such good fighters that the Romans recruited them as mercenaries into the Roman army. They were also traders. They traded extensively with their neighbors. Gothic furs were much in demand. The Germans looked down on the Romans. After all, what did the Romans do? They spent days in the bath, reading, writing poetry. They were clean-shaven, so they resembled young boys or women. Romans were also predominantly Christian, another um, X against their names. After all, what was the precepts of Christianity? Love thy neighbor, uh, avoid fights. But the, uh, Germans, the Germans also respected the fact that the Romans had a huge empire, an empire which stretched at its height 
from where Britain and Scotland are today all the way to where Russia begins, from West Germany all the way down to Central Africa and the Middle East. And the Romans had gotten this empire the old-fashioned way. They had killed people for it. By the same token, the Romans admired the fact that the Germans were physically fit, excellent fighters, and uh, were people who the Romans always bought as slaves when they had a chance. Now, over time, the Germans might have, as so many other people were, just assimilated into the Roman Empire. But something happened which upset the apple cart. This something was the Huns. Now, the Huns are not a Germanic people. They originate in the central part of Asia. They were short, with small eyes, flat noses, and dark hair. Like the Germans, they were patriarchal. They too lived in clans, which were part of a larger tribe. They were also a more ethnically mixed people. They lived off herding, and they had huge herds of horses, which forced them to be nomadic. They followed their large horse herds about a thousand miles a year. A man's wealth was measured by the number of horses he owned and the number of wives he had. As with the Germans, the Huns, the leaders of the Huns were leaders as long as they were successful. Like the Germans, the Huns were a militaristic people. Fighting was a way to gain wealth and status. They were excellent horsemen and excellent archers, using bows that were about five feet long and iron arrowheads. Talk more about that in a minute. By 350, the Huns had invaded the Black Sea region, and in that they came in contact with the Visigoths. The Visigoths were living on an island in the Baltic Sea. Tall, big-boned with reddish hair, they had blue or greenish-gray eyes. Probably came from the region of modern-day Gdansk, Poland. The Romans saw them as, three, as, as fierce warriors, and they were highly superstitious. The Visigoths were scared of the Huns, and we'll find out why later. They begged the Roman emperor, Valens, Richie Valens, to let them into the empire. The Emperor Valens was too weak to keep the Visigoths out. So Valens came up with what he thought was the perfect solution. He told them they could come in, but only one man out of every 500 could bring their weapons. The rest had to turn their weapons in. To show you how scared the Visigoths were, they agreed. And their king, Fridigern, led about 80,000 Visigoths across the Danube into the uh, Roman Empire. Unfortunately, the Visigoths soon realized that they had jumped from the frying pan into the fire. Corrupt Roman governors and slave traders hijacked grain shipments meant for the Goth refugees. At the lowest point, Goths were so hungry they were selling their children into slavery. The, the price of a, a, of a Visigothic child was a one dog carcass for one child. 
I think that's cruelty to dogs, but anyway. As a result, the Visigoths did the right thing. They went to Emperor Valens. They sent representatives to Emperor Valens, telling him what was happening to them. And they quickly realized that Valens didn't care. So they decided to take a page from the Christian Bible. God helps those who help themselves. So they began to attack small Roman army groups, taking their weapons. And with time, they took larger and larger um, uh, groups of soldiers over. And finally, they were outside the walls of Adrianople in 378. Valens uh, draws up a 15,000-man army and marches out to meet the Visigoths, who had about 12,000 men. Who won? Remember, no one makes it into the history books except winners. So, the Visigoths won. Valens and most of his army was killed. Legend has it that Valens was skinned, and his skin sent to the Eastern Emperor. There's always a Martha Stewart in every bunch. Valens' successor, Theodosius, decided to buy the Visigoths off. He allowed them to settle along the Danube as an independent people, something which had never happened in the uh, Roman Empire before. Now in 395, the Visigoths elect a new king. They raised Alaric on a shield, proclaiming him king of the Visigoths. And Alaric begins his kingship with a raid into the Greek peninsula, looting and killing. In 401, the superstitious Alaric heard a voice which told him, Break off all delays, Alaric. This very year thou shalt force the Alpine barrier of Italy. Thou shalt penetrate the city. Well, Alaric sees this as an omen. And he heads off to Italy. He struck terror into the Roman citizens of northern Italy, but was halted at the Battle of Palencia. Alaric's wife was taken prisoner at this battle, so his troops were probably accompanied by large numbers of their women and children, which meant that Alaric's Italian invasion was really a human migration. After another defeat in 403, Alaric leaves Italy. The prophecy had been false. The emperor, however, was scared enough to move the Western Roman capital to Ravenna, which was more defensible because it was surrounded by swamps and it was also more escapable. Ravenna had access to the sea. Emperor Honorius uh, removes troops from Gaul, Britain, and Spain as a result of trying to stop Alaric. But unfortunately for Rome, Honorius decided to double-cross these very soldiers who had defended him against Alaric. He killed their wives and children. Consequently, the 30,000 soldiers who had defeated Alaric now flood Alaric's camp, demanding that he lead them against their cowardly enemies. Alaric agreed once again, he crosses the Alps, and in 408, he appears outside the walls of Rome, beginning a strict blockade of the city. Alaric demanded 5,000 pounds of gold, 
30,000 pounds of silver, 4,000 silken tunics, 3,000 hides, animal hides, dyed scarlet, and 3,000 pounds of pepper. He also wanted 40,000 goth slaves freed. The Senate tried to intimidate Alaric. They told him that there were huge numbers of Romans living in the city who would fight. Alaric laughed and said, the thicker the hay, the easier mode. As a result, Rome capitulated. The Romans didn't have the full amount that Alaric was demanding, so the Romans stripped down and melted pagan statues and shrines to make up the difference. The ransom they paid Alaric was enough to feed 200,000 adults and children for a year or equip 30,000 Roman soldiers. Alaric didn't really want the city of Rome. What he wanted was to secure for himself a regular and recognized position within the empire's borders. He wanted a territory 200 miles long by 150 miles wide between the Danube and the Gulf of Venice. Short-sightedly, Emperor Honorius refused, and Alaric once again marches on Rome. Rebellious slaves opened one of Rome's gates, and the attackers poured in. Alaric enters Rome on August 24th, 410, and for three days, the Visigoths are going to sack the city. Alaric, himself a Christian, was remarkably civilized, refusing to burn and pillage on a grand scale. Nonetheless, many of the city's great buildings were ransacked, including the tombs of the Emperor Augustus and Hadrian. These tombs also contained the remains of many Roman emperors of the past. Their ashes were scattered. Many Romans were taken captive, including the emperor's 20-year-old sister, who became the new wife of Alaric's brother-in-law. The city's population dropped from 55,000 to 10,000, and an estimated 6,000 to 12,000 people were murdered. When the Western Emperor Honorius heard the news, a slave told him that Rome had perished. Honarius was shocked and began to cry. However, it was because Honarius had a pet chicken who he called Rome, and he thought the slave was telling him that the chicken had died. When he found out that the chicken was alive and well, he didn't care about the city or its people. However, Jerome, an early Christian church father, burst into tears upon hearing the news. He said, my voice sticks in my throat, sobs choke me. The city which has taken the whole world was itself taken. It was the first time in 800 years that Rome had fallen to an enemy. It also marked the beginning of the end of Rome's grandeur. It revealed the Western Empire's vulnerability and military weakness. Having won Rome, Alaric marched south. He wanted to invade Africa, which was rich with grain. But a storm battered his ships to pieces, and many of his soldiers drowned. Alaric himself died soon after, probably of malaria. His body was buried under the riverbed of the Bucento, 
according to the pagan practices of the Visigothic people. The river's water was temporarily redirected while the grave was dug, and then Alaric and his wealth were interred. When the burial was finished, the river returned to its usual channel, and those who had done the work of burying Alaric were executed, so no one would know where he was buried. I will give an automatic A in the course to anyone who goes to Italy and finds the grave. Pagans claimed that Rome was sacked because the pagan gods were unhappy with Christianity. But St. Augustine writes his City of God, refuting this idea. Augustine stated that Rome was an earthly city, a community of individuals who loved themselves rather than God. So God was not interested in saving Rome. What was important in God's eyes was the eternal heavenly kingdom. But again, Rome's weakness was now apparent to everyone. The fact that Onarius had pulled troops out of Britain, out of Spain, out of Gaul, meant that these areas were now left undefended. And by 417, parts of the Western Empire are overrun by three of the most powerful Germanic tribes, the Jutes from Jutland, Denmark, sailed across the North Sea, the Angles and the Saxons from northern Germany and southern Denmark stream into undefended Britain. Germans disliked the Roman stone houses and streets, so they build their own villages on land with natural resources like food, water, and wood. Britain's forest had everything the Germans needed. The cities did not. Each German village had a high fence to protect cattle from wild animals and to keep human enemies out. Anglo-Saxon houses were small wooden huts with a strong roof, just one room in which the whole family lived, slept, and socialized together. The biggest house in the village belonged to the chief, large enough to house him, all his warriors, and sometimes his cows. It consisted of a long hall with a stone fire in the middle. Hunting trophies and battle armor hung from its walls. Tiny windows and a hole in the roof allowed smoke to escape. Anglo-Saxons loved to party. They liked a good meal. Meat cooked on the fire accompanied by bread and washed down with beer. They sang songs long into the night. Anglo-Saxons were a very resourceful people. Everything had its use. Nothing went to waste. Animal fat was used for lamps, knife handles made out of deer antlers, glue from cows. Early Anglo-Saxon villages were often named after the leader of the tribe, so everybody knew who was in charge if you visited. Reading in Anglo-Saxon times, you'd have been in Red's village. Roman Britannia was therefore transformed into England from the Saxon word Angleland. The Jutes ended up in Kent, the Angles in East Anglia, and the Saxons took over Essex, Wessex, and Middlesex. Some Germanic chiefs realized that Roman walled cities, like London, made for great fortresses, so they built their wooden houses inside these walls. In Gaul, the Ostrogoths, Visigoths, Lombards, Burgundians, and Vandals sweep in. 
The Vandals were a Germanic tribe who had been pushed south and west into the Roman Empire by the Huns. In 406, the Vandals were allowed to settle on the far bank of the Rhine River. One winter night, they crossed over the frozen river and poured into the empire. They ravaged Gaul and proceeded on to Spain, settling their people in both regions. The Vandals captured many of the important Spanish ports and built a navy for defense against Rome. The Vandals were ruled by a king and an upper class of nobility. They were famous for their skill and horsemanship. They were also skilled craftsmen, excelling in weaponsmithing and highly respected for their jewelry, ceramics, and weaving. Some Vandals adopted Christianity. But what about our friends, the Huns? Well, the Huns, as I mentioned, were a group of Eurasian nomads appearing from east of the Volga, who migrated into Western Europe about 370. They attacked the Goths. Their main military technique were mounted archery and javelin throwing. They rode into battle organized by tribal clans and families while screaming horrific war cries. They were a hunting society of pastoral warriors whose primary diet was horse meat and milk. The Huns got everything from horses. They used their manes to make ropes, and uh, they used their hides for clothing and for the skins that made their homes. And they also, when they wanted to get a little buzz on, they drank fermented mare's milk. Huns were a very mobile people whose mounted archers acquire a reputation for immense ability. Sources also mention that they are almost glued to their horses. In fact, it was said that Hun children learned to ride before they learned to walk. A woman would give birth, and in a few days as the tribe moved on following their large horse herds, they, she would have the baby carrying the baby with her, on horseback. In a few months, as the child got bigger, she put the child sitting in front of her. By the time the child was three, he had his own horse. They spent so much time in the saddle that when they walked on the ground, they walked clumsily. The Huns also practiced artificial cranial deformation, artificially lengthening the skulls of babies by binding them. Hun soldiers dressed in layers of heavy leather greased with liberal applications of animal fat, making their battle dress supple and rain-resistant. They covered their steel-lined helmets with leather, and they wore chainmail around their necks and shoulders to protect them from arrows and sword strikes. They used both the bow and the lance, using them interchangeably during a battle. They also introduced the langsax with a two-foot cutting blade, as well as a sword with a long straight three-foot blade attached to a sword belt. The most famous weapon was their bows, five feet in length. They used diamond-shaped iron arrowheads, which had better penetrating power than flat arrowheads. They wore soft leather boots that were excellent for riding, but fairly useless for foot travel. They relied instead on a shrewd sense of when to attack and when to withdraw. Another important strategy they used time and again was to pretend to retreat in battle and then suddenly turn, attacking, 
the unprepared enemy. They were experts in deceit, surprise attacks, and cutting off their enemies' supplies and reinforcements. The Huns brought large numbers of horses to use as replacements and to give the impression of a larger army. They stationed sentries at significant distances who were in constant contact with each other to prevent surprise attacks. The Huns preferred to fight at long range, utilizing ambush, encirclement, and that feigned retreat. They pursued their enemies relentlessly after a victory and wore them out by long sieges. A man measured his status by the number of horses and wives he had, but women moved freely and mixed with the men. Women had a large degree of authority over the domestic household. The Huns worshipped the sky deity Tengri, who they believed created all things. They also worshipped minor divinities. Once in the empire, they remained out of sight for the next few years. They tried invading the Eastern Roman Empire, but were defeated in Armenia. They abandoned their invasion and turned their attention back to Europe. In 434, Attila becomes the king of the Huns. The Huns made the decision in a general council while seated on horseback. Attila differed from other barbarian conquerors by trusting more to cunning than to force. He ruled using his people's superstitions to impose his will on them. Exaggerated stories of his cruelty, probably spread by him, became the groundwork for his victories. People were terrified and believed nothing could save them. Attila could neither read nor write, but it didn't detract from his intelligence. He lived and dressed simply and ate nothing but meat on a wooden trencher, drank from a wood cup while his guests were given goblets of gold and silver. Attila had many wives, and his palace was a huge log house, floored with wood plain planks, but adorned with elegantly carved polished wood, reinforced with carpets and skins to keep out the cold. Attila carried a sword, which he said the Roman god of war, Mars, had given him. By 440, the Huns reappeared in force on the borders of the Roman Empire. Attila invaded the Balkan region in 446, destroying over 70 cities. The reputation of the Huns for brutality and indiscriminate slaughter was well known and spent and sent people fleeing for their lives. Once they had inflicted sufficient casualties, the Huns closed in to finish off the survivors. No general eagerly engaged Attila's enemy. They came from nowhere and melted away, leaving only destruction behind them. It was impossible to establish an effective early warning system. The Huns, as I said, were excellent horsemen. They could ride for days on horseback. They could sleep on horseback. When one horse got tired, they could jump in mid-stride from one horse to a fresh horse. If they uh, got thirsty, they leaned over a horse's neck, opened a small vein in its neck, and drank its blood. If they got hungry, they leaned back, cut a small sliver of flesh off the horse's backside, and ate that. If they wanted a warm meal, 
they threw that piece of meat under them as they rode, which gives a whole new meaning to cooking with gas. Attila's forces were equipped with battering rams and rolling siege towers, and they successfully assaulted military centers, massacring the inhabitants. One witness wrote, when we arrived, we found the city deserted as though it had been sacked. Only a few sick people lay in the churches. All the ground adjacent to the riverbank was full of the bones of men slain in war. The Huns encountered and destroyed the Roman army outside Constantinople, but were stopped by the city's double walls. Nonetheless, from then on, Constantinople sent Attila an annual subsidy of 2,000 pounds of gold to prevent him from attacking again. In 450, Attila decides to attack the Visigothic kingdom. The Western Empress sister sent Attila an engagement ring, asking his help to escape her forced betrothal to a Roman senator. Attila decides to forget about the Visigoths and accepts her proposal, asking the emperor for half of the Western Empire as dowry. In 451, Attila and 2,000 Huns invade Gaul. 200,000 Huns invade Gaul. They move through the countryside, leaving slaughter and devastation. A combined Roman Goth army confronted Attila, finally defeating the great Hun leader in one of the bloodiest fights. Attila withdrew his forces and left Gaul. But a year later, he was back in 452 to renew his claim for the hand of the emperor's daughter, sister. Invading and ravaging Italy along the way, Attila's army sacked numerous cities and the surviving residents fled to small islands in the Venetian lagoon. Later, this is going to become Venice. The Huns stopped at the Po River, right near the walls of Rome. Pope Leo I met Attila and obtained from him a promise to withdraw Italy. According to the legend, the Pope rode out on a small white donkey. Attila's men told him about this, and he, in turn, Attila jumped on his Mongolian pony and rode to meet this man. They sat there looking at each other. According to one version, the Pope promised Attila that if he left Rome in peace, one of his successors would receive a holy crown. Another reason might be that for two years Italy suffered from famine. Maybe by this time disease and starvation had taken hold in Attila's camp. He might also have had a superstitious fear of taking Rome since Alaric had died shortly after sacking Rome. For whatever reason, Attila turns his horse around and leaves and retreated back to his stronghold in Hungary. Attila returned to his palace across the Danube, planning to strike at Constantinople again. But before that, Attila decided to take another wife. The festivities went on all night. Mare's milk, fermented mare's milk flowed, and Attila got so drunk that his men carried him to the bridal tent and dumped him on the bed. Unfortunately, Attila had always suffered from nosebleeds. So drunk, 
laid out on his bed. His nose started to bleed, and he was so drunk he couldn't turn over, so he literally drowned in his own blood. His body was placed in the midst of a plain and laid in a silken tent. The Huns were grief-stricken over the loss of their leader. The best horsemen of the entire tribe cut their long hair and smeared their faces with their blood. They said the greatest of all warriors should be mourned, not with the tears of the wailing of women, but with the blood of men. They rode slowly in a steady circle around and around the tent while everyone sang of Attila's deeds in a funeral dirge, saying, he fell not by wound or by treachery of friends, but in the midst of his nation at peace, happy in his dying without sense of pain. Who could write this as death when none believes it calls for vengeance? They followed that day of grief and fasting with a strava or funeral feast celebrated over his tomb and funeral games and revels. Finally, far beyond the Roman Empire's frontiers, Attila was buried, his body encased in three coffins. The first, a coffin of gold, was placed into a coffin of silver, gold and silver reflecting the honors he had received from the empires he conquered. And the two coffins were then put into a final coffin of iron, which symbolized the fact that Attila had conquered nations. They also added the arms of the enemies that he had won against. Late that night, with great secrecy, they buried his body in the earth. They killed those who buried him to keep his grave secret and safe. Again, you find his grave, you get an automatic A. Attila was a brilliant horseman and military leader. He held his empire together through the strength of his individual personality. He not only made the Huns the most effective fighting force of the time, but he also built a vast empire from virtually nothing. In less than 10 years, his empire stretched from Central Asia, across modern-day France, and down through the Danube Valley. After he died in 453, his sons tried to hold his empire together, but failed and it broke apart by 469. By the end of the 12th century, the royal court of Hungary proclaimed its descent from, Hild from Attila. Was this the holy crown that the Pope had promised him? Nobody really knows where the Huns went after Attila died. They disappeared mysteriously. Some people say that they went to Hungary I personally think they're in Baltimore. Hi, hon. But Attila's death did not solve Western Europe's problems.